Welcome to Into Theology. I'm Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with the Right Reverend Professor Ian Clary. <laughs> I, I don't know how many Baptists are called Right Reverends, but Ian has chosen that title for himself. I'll, I'll take it. I joke with people. I, I kind of say I'm an Anglo-Baptist. Like, I, I love the prayer book. I love liturgy. Um, I could I could pretty easily go Anglican, I think. Um, I do love the Baptist tradition, and there's a lot of the theology that I still, like, feel bound to. Um I love Baptist history and stuff like that. So I'm still, I'm a Baptist, but I could, I could easily be an Anglican. Well, but there's a reason I think that's, that you say that, and it's this, that during the Reformation and afterwards, there was a lot of national churches and they were created around a confession. Yeah. Once you move to North America, where there, and Canada has no national church, there's no established church. Then you have all these reformed congregations in Canada, but no one national church. Yeah. And there's two ways you can, Two things you can do either you can silo in your original ethnic group or you can appreciate the riches of the entire reformational tradition yeah so i agree i mean if you're if you're you're you can be a baptist who loves presbyterian dutch reformed anglicans because it's, this it's a single i won't say it's a single tradition but it's a single um stream that has is the is the reform it's a reformed congregation stream of the latin church yeah, Great. that's a way to put it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we should actually all think that way. That would be better because there's no reason we need a silo anymore. There's not one national Canadian or one national United Statesian church. That's why yeah. you, you have the Episcopal Church. You don't have the Church of the United States of America, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. There's no established church either. Although you have the PCUSA and the PCA. So yeah, but they're not. Maybe. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> but you know what I mean by that? These are all, yeah. No, I totally get what you're saying. No, I agree. And I mean, like, you know, the way I sort of think, I, I, it's something that I, 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 I try to work through in my mind because Baptists are by kind of almost like by definition uh, in terms of their origins are separatists, right? But I don't want to be a separatist because I believe in Catholicity. And so, you know, Baptist Catholicity, what does that look like? So the guys that are behind the Center for Baptist Renewal are doing good stuff. Matt Emerson, Luke Stamps, those guys. Uh, the London Lyceum, uh, I'm appreciating what a lot of their work is doing. Um, Steve Harmon, his book on Baptist Catholicity. I want to think about that, right? Because I want to make sure that I actually am really tied into the great tradition in terms of Catholicity that I think it's very easy to do as an Anglican. Um, and then, you know, the idea that, you know, when we were first founded in the, in the 17th century in England, the Baptists, the Book of Common Prayer was used as a weapon against us. So no doubt they didn't want to use it, right? Because the, this, you know, Archbishop Laud or something was forcing you to. But now that we're not in that context anymore, like, why wouldn't we use the, the prayer book? I, I, use, I use the Anglican Church of Canada's uh, Book of Common Prayer uh, every class, I read this, the psalm from that reading uh, here at CCU. My microphone is literally on the Book of Common Prayer. There you go. That's all it's good for. <laughs> no, I, no, I think that's right. And so there's, there's basically two choices. You can ignore this tradition, and then in effect, you become kind of a, a, self, a self-autocrat. It's all about your individualistic Self-autocrat is a redundancy because auto means okay. self. <laughs> you become an auto. You, you become, though, but you become the judge of yourself and your yeah. own tradition and whatever's yeah, yeah. true. Yeah. There's nothing you're bound into that's a little bit bigger than yourself. Yeah. To the point that, like, even though our unity is in Christ, we, we still feel like we are this regional expression. But I think if you, on the other hand, you can say the diversity of groups from Europe and wherever else in the world that has come to North America are no longer founded upon an ethnic, national, 
confession, like like the Dutch confession or whatever, then you can actually begin to appreciate all the different groups as yep. the in the providence of God. Yeah, I think it just it's just it's just a helpful thing to switch through. And I think some of us, when you get really excited about a confession, you're like, ah, oh, I love you know whatever this is. And you're like, yeah, but that was for the Dutch Reformed Church. It's good yep. and useful, but you're not in the Netherlands. Yeah, you know, in 1642 or whatever it is. And so you have to think about that, what that actually means in the 21st century North American context. Yeah. Um, so we are also coming back <laughs> to John Calvin, and we are going to talk about some really interesting things. So I want to ask you an opening question. And the question is, can the government bind our consciences? Are you asking me what I think about that? Or are you asking me what Calvin I'm asking you that? insofar as <laughs> what your reading of Calvin is? There you go. Uh, no, uh, no, I and Calvin actually are on page of this. Uh, <laughs> neither of us think that the government or really anybody uh, except God uh, binds the conscience, right? That, that, that I love this chapter, man. Like, and just those sections, those opening sections of chapter 10 of book four on the conscience uh, and how he gets into like God, God's ownership over the soul and, and all these sorts of things. It was just, man, this is so helpful, especially when we're thinking about everything that's going on with church lockdowns, COVID mask mandates and everything like that. There's so much relevant here. So could I read, um, the, there's like a, a chunk here that I'd like to read from on page 1183. Yep. So we're in uh, book four, chapter 10, section four. Yep. You're going to read the last paragraph of that section, which is on page 1183 of the, is it Battles? I always forget. Battles, yeah, bat Battles of Lewis. Yep. So th this is really great. And then we can just kind of use this as a launching pad to, to kind of t discuss uh, Calvin's view of the conscience here. So um, that paragraph right before section five starts there, right at, right at the end of four, it says, uh, Calvin says, in things intrinsically indifferent, there is another consideration for we ought to abstain from them if they cause any offense uh, but with a free conscience. So Paul speaks of meat consecrated idols. And here he's quoting 1 Corinthians 10. If anyone raises objections, Paul says, do not touch it for conscience sake. I speak not of your conscience, but another's. A faithful man would sin, Calvin says, if previously warned, he nonetheless ate such meat. But however necessary abstention may be to him with regard to his brother, as is prescribed by God, still he does not cease to retain freedom of conscience. We see that this law binding outward works only leaves the conscience free. And that distinction is so key. The distinction between outward works and the conscience. And, uh, and then where he kicks off the, the beginning of that paragraph with what we would sometimes call adiaphora, um, things indifferent. And, um, and so Calvin is going to really set up this like whole relationship between like, what is the nature of the conscience? Who can bind it? What is the relationship of out, what, is, what is that in relation to outward works? And who can bind those? Because there's going to be a distinction here. And just make it kind of practical. You, you could work a 40 hour a week job. I know at one level, your freedom is bound to the, the company that you work for. Yep. But what's actually bound is the sort of the outward works, but your, your conscience, whether you believe in Christ and so on, that is not, you're, you're, fr you're always free. Yep. I mean, technically you're free to leave that job and, and quit, but yep. <laughs> there's I mean, kind of this practical reality of there's this, there's this, duplex manner of life that we live we're bound to the man in heaven while we live as foreigners on earth this is exactly luther 
in the freedom of a Christian, where he talks about how we are, uh, you know, on one, in one sense, we're the freest of all. And yet in the same sense, we are, you know, slaves to all as it were. And uh, it's that same sort of distinction that's being worked out here. And well, Paul uh, the, says this too, like he, he basically serves others. He's all things to all people, but he's still free in Christ, yeah. despite the fact that he obligates himself to others. Yeah. And it's the relationship really between Romans 13 and Romans 14, right? Mm. Like Romans 13, mm -hmm. you obey the governing authorities, but Romans 14, you have conscience and you have, you have your conscience and you have to respect the conscience of the other Christian. Uh, as uh, just as Calvin says right here when he's quoting from first Corinthians 10. And so you, you might have certain freedoms, but then because that other person's conscience is going to be pricked by the expression of your freedom, you actually have to bind yourself uh, for the other person, even if they're the weaker brother. And if you don't, then what was once a, you are free to do now becomes sinful. And you're like, okay, like this is a really complex situation here that takes really wisdom and prudence, right. To kind of work mm. through and which is, we don't, we're not seeing a lot of that uh, as people are trying to work through these bigger issues of conscience today. So, so there's like, I think there's four ideas here. There's uh, in, intrinsically in different things. Yep. There's freedom. There's conscience and there's binding or yeah. Binding. So yeah. like, let's talk about all those. So just briefly, what's something indifferent? What's an idea for it? What, what is that thing? So one way, I, I think the best writer on this from the kind of reform tradition is Richard Hooker in his Laws of Ecclesiastical Piety, right? Where he's going to, he's the kind of famous guy for what we call things indifferent. Things indifferent or adiaphora are not things unimportant. Um, these are things that are really, you know, uh, that matter. matter. You might have strong theological scruples about uh, like something like church government, right? Should you be a, uh, have an Episcopal uh, framing of government? Should it be Presbyterian? Should it be congregational? Even what we were just talking about at the beginning of the podcast here. Those are things indifferent. They're not unimportant. The way you govern and structure your church is really, really important. But uh, I think even as a Baptist, I can ascribe, subscribe to like a lot of what Richard Hooker has to say, even though he's writing about the Anglican tradition, uh, because of these things indifferent. So if we set up, if, if, if based on, on uh, a coming together of Christians and a setting up of a denomination and a certain sort of structure, say it's Presbyterianism, that doesn't make it better or worse than the Episcopal structure. But if we have things set up that way, that actually has like real governance and ownership over you. Um, but you can, in certain situations, or you should be free to dissent from that under the right conditions. And so that, that might be an example of adiaphora. So it's, it's still important. Things indifferent doesn't mean things unimportant, but it doesn't touch exactly on like the gospel or the two mysteries of the faith, those sorts of things that we can have legitimate disagreements over. Well, I think too, um, on page 1181, Calvin at least implies a sort of definition of a diaphora. He, he talks about how uh, he wants to attack the idea that people will lay um, rules upon you that are like be overly scrupulous on things that are not necessary for salvation. So I think yes. things that are necessary for salvation are not not are not things intuitively indifferent. Whatever is not necessary for salvation is an indifferent thing. So that might be one way to put it. Um, so okay, we have that kind of figured out, and then he gives an example, and this is the eating of meat or not eating of meat. Yep. It's interesting too. So this is a you know, first Corinthians 10 that he talks about. And then he makes this argument that like, if someone says you shouldn't eat this meat for whatever reason, um, for your, for, for another person's conscience say, okay, so you don't do that. 
but that doesn't actually mean you become unfree. You still remain free, yep. despite the fact that you're physically abstaining from what you can freely take in. Yep. In other words, uh, the person envisioned by Calvin and Paul is not like an absolute libertarian who says, well, because I'm by essence free, I can do what I want as long as, you know, regardless, right? As long as I'm not physically harming someone else. Right. In this case, Paul says no. And Calvin's agreeing, I think that if you have, if you know someone whose conscience is bothered, it's actually okay for you not to eat the meat, even though you still have that freedom. Yep. Or something. I mean, I might be slightly misreading what, what Calvin's getting at, but it's that a basic idea. No, and totally. uh, I think that's a really useful paradigm because I think for all of us, when we think of freedom, we think more absolutely rather than relatively. So your, your, your freedom, rel but you can obligate yourself. And therefore, yeah, maybe you for a short time lack the, the freedom to go to the grocery store, the freedom to eat meat, the freedom to do X, Y, and Z. But that regardless doesn't touch your, your conscience, your actual freedom that you have, Christian freedom. Yeah, yeah, true Christian freedom, right? Because he's going to say like, who is the one who binds your conscience. It's God, right? God is the one who has ownership of your soul. That's why Calvin's so upset with, because this is within this context of engaging with the Roman Catholic church, as opposed to what is true Catholicity. Mm. And the, the Roman Catholic church in his day is binding the conscience with the way right. they structure worship in their churches and uh, making these matters of salvation, right? And that, that's where Calvin's like, no, 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 no. There are things indifferent. This is not this is this does what you're doing here, Church of Rome, is you're now attempting to bind the conscience of 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 people in a way that only God's allowed to do. And that's mm -hmm. where he's so incensed and so worked up about this whole thing. Well, I, I think that's important. And it also explains a little bit too, like earlier on, Calvin at one level is pretty generous about who who can be part of the kingdom of God. It's like you have to rely on the mercy of God and so on. Like he doesn't say you need to believe in like double justification and satisfaction theory or whatever. And you're like, oh, he's pretty generous at one level. But here, actually, he I mean, he's pushing back. And the reason why he might be generous is compared to his opponents who are actually overly scrupulous. Yeah. Namely, the Roman church who adds what he calls scruples, these these outward forms of things that uh, become necessary for salvation, therefore bind your conscience. Yeah. So you, you, okay, let's say, so if you're a Roman person at this time, you might say, yeah, you're justified freely by grace, but to maintain that state of grace, you need to continue with these sacraments and you could always fall from grace by means of a, a mortal sin yeah. or have a deduction of, uh, have a demerit of grace by means of a venial sin. So that mm -hmm. the end of the end of your life, you become, you come before Christ and you'll either have to be purged in purgatory for the, for the venial sins that you didn't uh, account for through your penitential system, or if you die uh, in a state of ungrace because of a mortal sin, uh, you I think you missed the boat. <laughs> like uh, where you know it's interesting. Calvin is is saying like all of this is really then uh, binding your conscience, and so there, we, we kind of forget this. I mean, Luther on like there was a genuine freedom of conscience. And Calvin is because we read Calvin as if he's stodgy and stern, but I mean, like, well, he is a man of his age. There's a little bit of that, but well, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of that <laughs> compared to <laughs> yeah, and what we think of him relative. Yeah, what we think of him relative to those, he's actually kind of the the uh, he's not a libertine, but he is a um, no, not at all. Somewhere he's in between. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Calvin is a bit stodgy, but he's 
not religiously in the same way that his Roman opponents are. I think that's useful just yeah. to know contextually what's going on. Yeah. Um, so what is what are these outward works versus the conscience? Like describe that for me, like in your own words, maybe. I mean, from Calvin, but how are you like how does it what does that mean now? Now, okay. Um, well, I mean, an outward work could be, I mean, if we were to apply it to our context today with everything that's been going on with lockdowns and uh and masks let's use masks as an example for it right okay. max is a mask is something that's outward and so uh <clears throat> something that you put on your body and so does a does a an authority have a right to put that mask on your face uh yeah he does calvin would say um but not in such a way that it could be binding on your conscience so like nobody could come to you and say hey you can't be saved if you don't put this mask on your face, right? Because that, that's a binding of the conscience. But a person can say, uh, an authority could say, in order, whether you agree or not, uh, in order to uh, prevent the further spread of this, this COVID-19, um, we, we want you to put this mask on your face. And they have the right, as in terms of an outward work, to, to do that um, and in, in a way that you don't have to fear that it's violating your conscience if you put it on, right? Um, mm. And I think that's a way that you could uh, work out that distinction that he's making here between the the, the freedom free freedom of your conscience and then the binding of your outward work. Yeah, and added to what you're saying, I think we today misunderstand what the reformers and then what Paul was saying about freedom of conscience and freedom. Yep. Christian freedom is not like libertarian freedom or political freedom. I mean, yeah. Paul in fact, was in prison and likely died in Rome in prison. Um, what's going on here is the sort of freedom from scruples, uh, like things that prevent you from enjoying your salvation, things that are added on to the, the free grace of salvation. I mean, this, this whole section in, in, um, in section five on page 1183 talks about this darkness, this, this becloudedness, but there's always a little light of freedom yeah. of conscience throughout church history. And that is the sort of light that allows you to kind of overcome the scruples and the, the added layers of works and so on through the Roman church system that, that Calvin's fighting against. And that's what actually Calvin identifies as tyranny. Yeah. He calls it the tyranny of men, but he looks, it looks like what he's talking about. There is not tyranny in the sense of like, um, uh, like the Roman emperor is, is a tyrant but rather like a tyranny over conscience, mm -hmm. which is something that only a religious person can do who say, yeah, you're saved by grace, but, but now that you're saved by grace, you need to stay in by working really, really hard or you'll, you'll fall out of grace. Like it's that kind of stuff that he's fighting against. Yeah. Yeah. Between the distinction he makes between the false and the true bishops and those sorts mm -hmm. of things, right. On, on, and the fault, what, what it is that the false bishop is actually doing like on 118485. Um, in terms of like they 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 by necessity as false bishops are binding consciences whereas a true bishop would never actually do that it's interesting though he does get into the civil sphere he, he talks mm -hmm. about uh, obeying rulers for conscience sake and so on um and then as he goes into this he wants to to distinguish a uh, genus and species right yeah on, on 11 bottom of 11 so, yeah just for and this is interesting he says for even though individual laws may not apply to the conscience so like wear a mask, wear a seatbelt, drive the speed limit. Because remember, the, the conscience in particular for Calvin is not this general idea, but it's religious conscience freedom. Yeah. He says, we are still held by God's general command, you know, namely obey authority, 
yep. which commands commends us to the authority of the magistrates. Now he doesn't make it clear, but Vermili will, and I think maybe Kelman's getting that. Vermili says God ordains authority, but individual magistrates misuse that authority, right? So he's getting at this a general idea that you like when I read Romans 13, I think of us as um placing ourselves under the hierarchy of God's created order. Yeah. But it's different than me saying, uh, you know, President Biden or Prime Minister Trudeau as an individual is like God's man on earth. Right, right, right exactly. I, just, I know my place and I submit to that, but I'm not going to listen to them if they command me to, to do evil. Yeah. Um, and Paul's uh, discussion turns on this point. The magistrates, since they have been ordained by God, ought to be held in honor. Right. Meanwhile, he does not teach that the laws framed by them apply to the inward governing of the soul, which this is the conscience or something similar, since he everywhere extols above any decrees of men, both the worship of God and the spiritual rule of right living. Now, this is, again, but what's really important, like we've talked about it way early on, Calvin actually has a theological anthropology of body and soul that is, yeah, it's an irreducible sum of the two, but there are still the two. Yeah. We think we kind of destroyed those distinctions, but you got to remember, like when you and I die, our body's here, but we're with God. How does that happen? Yeah. Well, the only the necessary conclusion is there's something there's something of us of we or i that's with god that's not our body exactly right whatever that i is will be reunited to the body in the resurrection and then paul says in first corinthians 15 that body will be fully pneumatikos spiritual yep um not like casper the friendly ghost spiritual but holy spirit <laughs> right. spiritual. no still physical not, not yeah it's material. yeah in, in a sense of fully sanctified by the holy spirit and incorrupt and so on I was just I was just lecturing uh, this week here at CCU on on theological anthropology, and we're talking about body soul relationship. And I was saying how like within the Christian tradition and picking up from like kind of Aristotle's categories of form and matter, uh, that the soul is the form. Wait, you listen to body. Aristotle? That's oh, not I the listen, Bible. I read. I I I, I dream about him. You've <laughs> you read know? a book that's outside <laughs> of the sixty six canonical books of the Bible. Horrible. That's going to make you stupid. Pagan. Pagan. Yeah. Um, but you know, Thomas, like he picks up on this whole idea of like the soul is the form of the body. And so I, I jokingly, just to make the point with my students to say like, what happens to you? Like if you, if you're out in the middle of the ocean, you're fishing, uh, on a boat and you fall off a shark comes, boom, eats you. And then you go, your body goes through the digestive tract. And then where do you go out into the ocean afterwards? Right. Um, so that that's happened to your physical body. When you, when that shark kills you, your soul or your form immediately goes to paradise awaiting the resurrection once your once your soul is, is resurrected at the return of christ right you don't have to worry about what happened where's my body is it like is it has it been preserved intact somewhere floating out of the ocean it doesn't matter because the second the soul touches any kind of matter it makes you you and that because like your matter is constantly changing your cells mm. are like mm -hmm. are dying and new ones are being replacing it and all that kind of stuff like your matter is undergoing a constant state of change right that's where aristotle says in matter is where change occurs and so your 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 body's going through all this material change but your form is what makes you you it remains the same it's defining you the second matter touches there's like this kind of mutual participation bam you're back right. and so with this kind of glorified state your body can be you're incorruptible and, and you are made, you have then this kind of spiritual which, body because of the nature of right. the resurrection, which also explains why um, people talked about uh, the future as we're, we're getting an impassable state. Yeah. When you, when you hear that, you're like, well, that's just weird. No, all, all that's really being said is like your, your body no longer is going to break down and be cancerous and that yeah. it's not going to 
uh, create desires and passions in you that tempt you to do evil. Yep. Like it's a good thing. Like you want to be impassable. Yeah. <laughs> you want to have the characteristic of being that means you only enjoy the good all the time and are infused with the love of God. Like that's yeah. a really, really good thing. Yeah. By the way, it's the like, it's like thing, when, oh, go, sorry, go ahead. Uh, have you ever read the book Unbroken before? Uh, no, I haven't yet. Okay. Um, so is that, I think it's that, yeah, Zamperini. So basically, he's a World War II, uh, he's in a bomber in World War II, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. He gets shot down and they're on this boat and they're, they're going to float eventually to, I think, Japan or one of the islands. But there are like sharks that are like jumping on and trying to eat them. <laughs> Man. Terrifying. <laughs> anyway, so that, anyways, you were reminding me of that. Like that, maybe one of his friends actually uh, had that experience. Okay, but anyways, go on. I'm sure it happens. I don't remember what I was going to say. You totally threw me for a loop there and I lost it. What was Sorry, sharks. No, before that, before you said the thing about sharks. Shark uh, week. No, <laughs> I was shark, talking about shark. impassable bodies and impossible bodies. That's, what, actually what, that's what it was. I got it. But Sharknado. Um, <laughs> no, one of the uh, most, one of the classics of film. I'm going to forget again. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a classic for sure. Dude, I just saw Dune last night, man. Don't Dude. tell. I'm seeing it tomorrow. Don't tell me oh, anything. Oh, it's so good. Oh my yeah, God. I love that book. I listened oh. to it maybe last year in audiobook, And I was just like, I love it. Unbelievable. But no, I was going to say, like, when we're thinking about impassibility of the body, plus like divine impassibility, and then like relating that to divine blessedness, and then how we will enter into the blessed state, like when you're in a state of sheer blessedness, right? That's how impassibility should be understood. Because like, nothing's going to promote that change. When you're, when you're, when you're in a state of being blessed, uh, as that gets theologically described, mm. nothing's going to change that. You're not going to be subject to any kind of like passion that's going to make any kind of lesser or more than in that because you're in this perfected right. state of blessedness, just like God is divine, divinely but blessed in himself. And one of the really helpful things, I like, think we have all these, these created signs. So like we, we have this experience in life where you, you feel beyond yourself, like a beautiful sunset or overwhelmed by the, yep. by the ocean or something. I think these credit signs are meant for us to kind of long for something more. Yeah. But that moreness we get, and the benefit is that God's infinite. So we're always having more of that moreness. Yeah. And so those, yeah, those like feelings. Lewis, Lewis talks about that in the mm. weight of glory, right? I mean, um, yeah. Anyway, we're getting far afield of things here. Okay. What... So that's the, so tyranny, at least here, and with conscience and freedom for Calvin, just to maybe bring the discussion back to kind of a, a thing. It is more along the lines of tyranny of the conscience that is binding what you uh, believe is necessary for salvation. So if you say to be a Christian, you must follow the Mosaic law or something. Yeah. That's definitely tyranny yeah. because we're actually free from that. Uh, as a quick polemical side note, this is why I find certain forms of theonomy just completely uncompelling. Yeah. Um, not all, of course, because you can be a magisterial reformer with a theonomist bent, which would yeah. be, uh, but the point is some forms of it that are saying, it's necessary for a Christian to obey the law of Moses in this way. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. Even I don't, he might've changed this, but even like Rush Dooney, Rush Dooney, whatever yep. his name was, talked about how at least at one point you had to obey like the Mosaic food laws. Yeah. Now he may have changed his mind. I have no idea. I'm not even trying to, I'm only bringing him up as an illustration. I don't know the actual history there, but stuff like that, where you're just like, no, 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 you're free in Christ. Your conscience is free. Jesus told uh, uh, Peter three times <laughs> with the, the, the animals coming down that sheet you can eat it it's cool yeah. go for it uh next you know and so on so this is again so paul talks about tyranny or sorry john kelvin in section six on page 1184 again and i just think we've co-opted the words tyranny and conscience and um freedom and so on in our day 
as a solely political thing. And yep. this was what Calvin would call outward works or the outward form of it. And no, in fact, those things cannot bind the conscience. And if you do say they bind the conscience, you're doing the very, you're committing tyranny in the very way yeah. that Calvin's you're defeating it. You're the tyrant. Yeah, it's hilarious. And it's a ridiculous irony that we're doing this today. We are pretending that the government can uh, be tyrants over our conscience. And I'm not, I'm not, there's a political tyrant that's a different category, but yeah. Calvin's category, the Christian category is like, no. But think about this. The New Testament was written during the, the time period of Caligula. Yeah. And then afterwards, Nero. Yeah. <laughs> who were, I mean, if you want to think about a tyrant, I mean, these, all the Roman Empire's basic emperors, rather, they enslaved and conquered and crushed peoples and then gave them basically no, other enslaved them or left them with no rights, no natural rights, basically. Yeah. Roman citizens had some natural rights, but not like we think of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness today. Yeah. Um, obviously, they had some good benefits, but that, that was a small class of people. And the Christians yeah. typically weren't Roman citizens. Yeah. So when Paul is writing to the Romans, he's almost certainly only writing to a few who are citizens. And the rest are probably not. Yeah, uh, they don't have the natural rights that we would have. Some of the discussion about that today, too, is like really weird. I recently listened to a sermon by a pastor around here. And I think he was pulling this from some other people. I don't want to name names just because so, I don't want people to go read their stuff or listen to it. But this idea that, you know, Romans 13, because Romans addressed the um, uh, Romans is addressed to uh, Christians who are living under Nero, but in the early part of Nero's reign, when he wasn't like this maniac, like, things were like relatively free under Nero. So of course, then Paul's going to encourage like obedience to the authorities. Uh, but if he had, you know, if, if Nero, uh, if, sorry, if Paul was writing when Nero was being this like whack job, well, he would never have said those things, you know, I'm like talk about what? going behind the text to find its meaning. Like, do you I mean, not just... know what the Roman empire was? Like, do you not know who all the emperors were, you know, like I, when I heard that, I was like, ah, that is crazy. Anyway, um, what, what about his here? I like his definition. It's probably worth actually like noting what his definition of a conscience is. I right? mean, I guess here. if we're into that kind of thing. Yeah. Who cares about defining, defining, defining word, defining yeah. concepts by the author's own words. I don't know. Right. Uh, who does that anymore? Right. We right. just like, let's just come with our own. <laughs> Will it get any clicks on Twitter? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, no clickbait here. Sorry. Um, yeah, so he he's he, after he talks about the whole kind of like the forum of the conscience and and uh, and and stuff like that under number three. So he talks about the nature of conscience on page eleven eighty one. That first paragraph. The second paragraph there, he gives us this definition. Uh, so Calvin says uh, to solve this difficulty that he's just been talking about in the previous paragraph, it behooves us to grasp what conscience is. We must take our definition from the etymology of the word. So like like the kind of history and the development of the word. Uh, when men grasp the conception of things with the mind and the understanding, they are said to know uh, from which the word knowledge is derived. Um, so having a conception of something uh, and, and then actually understanding that conception is what constitutes knowledge. Actually reminds me of Anselm's ontological argument here. Um, and he says, in like manner, when men have an awareness of divine judgment adjoined to them as a witness, which does not let them hide their sins, but arraigns them as guilty before the judgment seat, this awareness is called conscience. So like it's a, a moral category. It's not just a category. Like it's not merely an epistemological category of just knowing and understanding, but it's an ethical category. It's, it's something wherein like you are now, it's between you and God. You are standing before God. You have these sins that you can't hide from him. And it's when your conscience now has this awareness where you are in like, he's using courtroom language, 
arraigned as guilty before the judgment seat. That awareness that you have of your own guilt is what conscience is. He says it is a certain mean between God and man, uh, for it does not allow men to suppress within them, uh, within himself what he knows, but pursues him to the point of making him acknowledge his guilt. Uh, this is what Paul means when he teaches that conscience testifies to men while their thoughts accuse or excuse them in God's judgment, Romans 2. A simple awareness could repose in man, bottled up as it were. Therefore, this feeling which draws men to God's judgment is like a keeper assigned to man that watches and observes all his secrets so that nothing remained buried in darkness. Hence that ancient proverb, and here he's quoting Quintilian, conscience is a thousand witnesses. By like reasoning, Peter also put the response of a good conscience to God. Uh, as equivalent to peace of mind. When convinced of God's grace, we fearlessly present ourselves before God. And when the author of the letter to the Hebrews, which he doesn't call Paul there, which I thought was interesting, uh, states that we no longer uh, have any consciousness of sin, he means that we are freed or absolved so that sin can no longer accuse us. Like, because sometimes when we think of like, oh, conscience and like our conscience is being pricked and those sorts of things. Like we feel like, and with the feeling of guilt, we feel like that's an entirely negative thing. When I read that, I was like, this is freeing. Like this is conscience was given to us as a tool to help us recognize our sin so that we could confess our sin before God. Right. And so like, like that, that whole discussion, when I read it was like, oh, like this is, this is leading to peace of mind. This mm. is great. Like, because before I was like, oh, I feel so guilty and convicted of my sin. You feel awful. No, that's actually the good that God's actually allowing you to have your conscience pricked before him. So, so you don't have to experience the judgment for that sin, because now you have the awareness of it such that you can confess it and then be freed from it. As like, well, that was so helpful for me. One piece to add an agreement with what you're saying is um, this is like a really important thing. I think Kelvin's getting at is our conscience is made for us before God, but sometimes our conscience is not bound to the word of God, but bound to certain societal norms. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times then you can feel false guilt and shame or also false freedom and acquittal yeah. because our conscience gets bound to say the norms of, of our particular culture, whether it's cancel culture or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's important to realize the conscience is something before God, before God, it's the yeah. thing that frees or accuses you. And at one layer, obviously there's a sense in which it's important for civil society because do not murder, do not steal, do justice is, is part of all what that means. But I think sometimes we get so accustomed to whatever the, the cultural mores are that we forget that we need those need to be according to the word of God, too. Yep. And sometimes we can live with unnecessary guilt or with an unpricked conscience because we seared it by means of allowing ourselves over and over to do something wrong and just excusing ourselves. Yeah, practice. so then we, then we have an unjustified freedom of conscience. Then. We have an unjustified freedom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's not true freedom. In fact, it's a, it's a sort of slavery because remember Jesus is the one who sins as a slave to sin. Yeah. So there's yeah. a searing of your conscience in Paul's language that makes you a slave, but you think you're free. So you got to, yeah. you always have to be bound to the word of God. Yeah. It's always that distinction between the inward and the outward man. And mm -hmm. so like, cause like the outward man could be thrown in prison by, you know, some sort of unjust state for committing some sort of crime. Uh, but you're actually standing free before the bar of God's justice and your inward man is entirely free because of justification. Mm. And, uh, uh, and so, I mean, like all these distinctions, I think are just like, this is where theology is so helpful. <laughs> you know, when you actually have a very clear understanding of how theological distinctions work and then really just like applying like 
thoughtful reason as Calvin's doing here to these issues. Like, oh, okay, now I get it. Mm-hmm. I think this might be a good place to stop this kind of the, the true freedom and before God. We've actually gone for like 45 minutes, I think, there. Wow. So yeah. It was it was a good discussion. I'm excited. So what we talked about is we're gonna keep reading Calvin. Um, we're gonna try to because we've covered a lot of the polemics against the Roman church and Calvin. Yeah. We're either gonna try to move through that faster now, um, or just highlight the parts that are not the polemics. Right. Uh, just not because yeah. they're necessarily unimportant, but because we've, we've talked through it and there's, there's a lot because of Kelvin's context. Um, so we'll, we'll keep moving. So we, we might do a bunch of chapters next week. We'll have to kind of look at the schedule. And yeah. See what we do. We're, we've been a little bit behind just that. Again, that's just my sheer business. I'm in midterms and stuff like that right now. And so like um, maybe it's a good way to get caught up. I mean, it'd be fun to talk about the donation of Constantine. Uh, maybe we could hit, hit that uh, Gregory the great there in number 11. Um, but once we get to 12, I mean, what is, what is excommunication? It'll be pretty interesting. I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited for the sacraments. I'm a big fan of word and sacraments as you might yep. know. <laughs> yep. Should be as all of us should be. <laughs> all right. See you next time, friend. See you, bro.